Hello, Gold Avenue Church family. This is our third sermon in a series on the hope of Jesus' return. Already the Lord has invited us to consider what ways we've been trying to arrange for our own little versions of heaven on earth in this life, and then to recalibrate our hopes and our desires so that they're fully set upon his return to renew all things and our lesser desires take their rightful place. And so as we began to investigate what Jesus says about the signs of the end of this age and his return, we read Matthew 24, verses 1 to 35, and we noticed that it could be divided into three periods. A period of labor pains, a period of heightened or intensified wickedness, persecution, and falling away, and a period of intense distress immediately prior to Jesus' return. Last week, we dove deep into the key image of labor pains, noting that these pains come with increasing frequency and intensity as the moment of birth draws nearer. So let's turn now to Matthew 24, verses 9 to 14, and let's pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, this psalmist prayed, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Father, we confess our simplicity before you today, and we ask, Holy Spirit, give light, give revelation, give insight. Give holy longing as your word is read and preached. Amen. Now, friends, if my version sounds a little different than yours, it's because I'm using a nearly literal translation for these verses. So let's remember that Matthew 24, verse 8 ends with, All these are the beginning of labor pains. And then, starting at verse 9, then they will deliver you up to pressure and kill you. And you will be hated by all ethnicities or people groups because of my name. And then many will be offended and they will betray and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be abounding, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all ethnicities or people groups. And then the end will come. If I was going to summarize what we just read, I would summarize it this way. Greatly increased pressure on the church leads to offense or stumbling. As many stumble, there's an increase in lawlessness, deception, and lovelessness. In this darkening context, many fall away. When the gospel of the kingdom has been preached to all ethnicities, then the very end of this age will arrive. Now, this section 
of verses 9 to 14 that we just read begins with the words, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. The word then is a time indicator that marks a transition from the previous words, all these are the beginning of birth pains, to an era of increased pressure, wickedness, deception, and lovelessness, which sounds absolutely horrible. And it would be really easy for us to read this first sentence and think, oh, thank God we're not there yet. Times do seem to be getting tougher for Christians, but they aren't putting us to death yet. But that would be a mistake, which betrays our American centeredness. Because the you in verse 9 is not you, the church in the United States of America. You is the entire body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the world around. And so we really can't read this like we're the center of the world or that Jesus is primarily talking to us here. We've got to ask ourselves right off the bat, how do our brothers and sisters in North Korea hear this verse? How about in South Sudan, in Indonesia, Iran, Eritrea, Yemen, Somalia, Afghanistan, Libya, Pakistan, India. These are the nations that are identified as the ten most persecuted as of last year, and China's not even on the list where the government is bringing incredible pressure on the church. So we've got to ask, how differently do they hear these words of Jesus than we might? Because their experience is every bit as legitimate as ours. You know, a January 15, 2020 article by Christianity Today says, Every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every week, 182 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. Now, by other accounts, these numbers that I just read are extremely conservative. So you might remember that last week when we talked about the image of labor pains and the way in which they increase in both frequency and intensity as birth nears, I shared that the 20th century had seen more Christian martyrs than the previous 19 centuries altogether. Over the 20th century, there's been a well-documented, massive upswing in persecution against Christians the world around. There's been a rising anti-Christ spirit that is bringing great tribulation, great pressure into the lives of millions of believers. And so as we enter this text today, seeking to both understand Jesus' warning and to wonder, where are we in relation to these words and this period? I want to encourage us to do so with great humility, open to the fact that we may be living in this period of increased persecution, wickedness, and deception now. So as I begin to explain these verses and why I believe we may be living in them, I want, to, I want to say that I will now turn and focus more on our experience in North America. Jesus begins by saying, Then 
they will deliver you up to tribulation or more literally pressure. And the word he uses for pressure pictures anguish and affliction. They will deliver you over to pressure and put you to death. Now, we need to note first that when Jesus says they will pressure you and kill you, Jesus isn't indicating that during this period, everyone who's pressured for their faith will automatically be killed. Whether and how much pressured believers are actually able to be killed depends upon a complex interplay of how much those bringing pressure against them, whether individuals or groups or governments have yielded their hearts and their minds to anti-Christ spirits of hatred and murder. But it also depends on whether those bringing pressure live under governments which seek to ensure justice and liberty for their citizens or under those who might turn a blind eye to persecution or under those who might actually even sponsor the persecution. So we can experience greatly increased pressure here in the United States and yet not, at least for the present, have to worry much about our physical safety. And yet physical safety is far from the only thing Jesus warns about. Jesus says, at that time, meaning in the season where there's a great increase in pressure against the church, many will be offended. The word Jesus uses here, is scandalizo, from which we get our word scandalized. It's actually a picture of, literally a picture of stumbling or being tripped up. So Jesus is prophesying about and trying to prepare us for a season when many Christians come under pressure and cave. When under pressure, we stumble and we get tripped up. Because we get offended. Now there are countless ways that we could understand Jesus' description of believers getting offended and stumbling under pressure. But today I'd like to briefly reflect on three that seem especially pertinent. First, we can easily stumble by becoming offended with God. God may allow us to go through a season where we lose things. We may lose them because of our faith in and love for Him, or simply because we live in a broken world. We may lose jobs, callings, ministries, friendships, spouses, homes, apartments. We may lose the respect and understanding of people we love. We may even lose our freedom. We may lose rights that we once treasured. We may lose our health. And if our theology says, yeah, there's sin in this world, but mostly it's somewhere else affecting somebody else, I should still be able to live the American dream without too much getting in the way of my happiness, then we're ripe for becoming disillusioned by hardship and turning bitter towards God. If we don't have a theology that accounts for the way in which the kingdom of darkness is totally and completely allayed against Christ and his followers, if we don't understand that Satan hates the church and constantly, actively works to harm it, 
And that as the scriptures say, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution or hardship. Well, then it becomes easy for us to become offended when God allows us to suffer, to feel abandoned, alone, confused, and even to point the finger at God. God, how can you? Where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? I thought you loved me. He does. He does. And that's why he warns us so that we won't judge him and stumble. Second way that we might stumble and become offended is with other people. This is a huge category. But I want to note here that the Greek text does not include the words which are in the NIV, quote, turn away from the faith, end quote. Literally, this sentence reads, at that time, many will be offended and will betray and hate each other. So offense leading to betrayal and hatred. Friends, if there's anything the last six months have made clear, it's that we live in a context of hypersensitivity. Much of our nation seems incapable of having meaningful dialogue in which two people or groups disagree with each other and yet are able to listen clearly to each other's viewpoints or arguments. We are fast reaching the point where the dominant cultural narrative goes like this. You must accept everything I say as truth in order to accept me. If you disagree with me, you are rejecting me. Therefore, I might preemptively reject you back, perhaps by canceling you. There is a hypersensitivity to disagreement. Disagreement is perceived as rejection. And when rejection is perceived to have happened, offense is taken and often just as quickly launched back. Now, I believe this this ultimately, this pattern ultimately has its roots in fatherlessness or in what we might call an orphan spirit. We are living in a generation where over 50% of us grew up in divorced homes, in part because there was such a massive turning away from righteousness in the 60s and 70s when the major part of a generation decided they were going to liberate themselves from God's standards for human sexuality. And a train wreck of brokenness and pain followed in its wake. So many people growing up feeling unwanted, abandoned, rejected, and an orphan spirit develops. The fruit of this orphan spirit is insecurity that manifests in an inability to welcome and love correction. Someone who perceives themselves to be rejected or is afraid of rejection is easily offended and unable to be corrected. They are touchy, guarded, and unable to welcome God's loving discipline. And friends, the church is not immune to this. Several weeks ago, I found myself telling one of our elders that in the 13 years of ordained ministry, I've had one person, one single person, ask me for corrective feedback. Now, the Bible says 
In Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But whoever hates discipline is stupid or foolish. It also says in Proverbs 15.32, those who disregard discipline despise themselves. So to love discipline is to love yourself. To despise it is to hate yourself. And yet, one person in 13 years has asked. Several have received correction with humility. And many, many have refused to even consider correction that was being offered. A good number of them simply leaving the church rather than accept correction. Paul counsels Timothy and all church leaders regularly to correct, rebuke, train, exhort, teach with all authority. In other words, there's no possible, no possibility for spiritual growth without a genuine openness to correction. And yet the church has been vastly infected by a widespread lack of openness to, 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 to correction or discipline. Rather than give serious consideration to the counsel of those God invests with authority for building us up in Christ, a dominant pattern when confronted with a growth area is to close down, shut down, to withdraw, to leave, to look for greener pastures. Many will become offended, says Jesus. The hypersensitivity of the culture, spirits of rejection, abandonment, offense, have leaked into the church. Too easily offended with leaders, but also with each other. We easily take offense. Everything I've just said about insecurity and inability to consider and receive loving correction from leaders applies straight across the board to all of our other relationships. If we can't allow godly leaders to bring correction without feeling rejected, it's going to be a struggle for us to receive correction from parents, to navigate conflict with friends, to receive feedback from employers or supervisors without experiencing the same dynamics. Friends, there's so much more that could be said here, but we need to move on to a third major way that we can become offended and stumble. We can become offended with or trip over God's righteous requirements as the world puts pressure on the church to conform to her standards. Nowhere can this be seen more clearly than in the area of human sexuality. In, the, in 1973, the late Reverend David Wilkerson, the founder of Teen Challenge and Times Square Church in Manhattan, he shared that he'd had a very troubling vision in which God had shown him, among other things, a coming day when, quote, there will be a wide acceptance of homosexuality. And the church will even say, it is a God-given gift that homosexual and lesbian ministers will be ordained and heralded as a new breed of pioneer, end quote. Now, at the time he spoke these words, many could see no way in which they would come to pass. 
They could not conceive of the church so losing her moorings in the truth of the Bible and so defying the holiness of God that she would somehow take an act that God in Scripture calls unnatural and an abomination in his sight and call it holy and good. And yet here we are, 47 years later, and exactly that has happened. Those who've lived through these years can testify that wave after wave after wave of pressure has come on the church. And not just pressure from without, but from within. Complex biblical and theological explanations which ignore the plain and clear meaning of the text. Personal stories that tug at the heart and evoke compassion. Accusations of being unloving and unhospitable, which wound, until finally the church began cracking. The Presbyterian Church of the USA was one of the first, and now she no longer believes and professes that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Two-thirds of her members don't believe Jesus is the only way you can be saved. Many other denominations have followed quickly behind them, being ripped up the middle as faithful believers attempt to hold the truth and the forces of evil attempt to baptize sin and celebrate it. Pressure. Confusion has entered and pressure intensified as the world insists we cannot tell someone they need to be transformed, that we must embrace sexual brokenness and call it good, that we are bigots homophobics and fear-mongering judges who are rejecting people's core identity. But friends, this is not at all a question of whether we're willing to love and accept all people regardless of sexual orientation. We do that with open hearts. This is a matter of whether we are willing to call for gospel transformation, for a full repentance and faith and a transformed life regardless of how the fall has affected a person's sexuality. And it's also a matter of whether we are willing to be vastly different from and not understood by the world. Whether we are willing to tremble with reverence before God's word and whether we will not allow ourselves to get tripped up and stumble over man's opinion of us when it gets very, very difficult. When we come under pressure, friends, many, many Christians are stumbling. The numbers are staggering and deeply concerning. A massive deception is unfolding, which is a part of Jesus' prophecy. Many false prophets or teachers will appear and deceive many people. Throughout Matthew 24, the strongest and most repeated warning Jesus gives is against deception. But the scary thing about deception is that by its very nature, a deceived person is blind to the fact that they're being deceived. To be deceived is to be tricked, it's to be fooled, it's to be outwitted into accepting something that should not be accepted, believing something that should not be believed, and then doing something that should not be done. 
It's to think we're being loving, compassionate, inclusive, and representing God when actually we're opposing him and promoting a demonic agenda. Many believers, large parts of the Western church, have become offended by or stumbled over God's righteous requirements for pure and holy sexuality. And because the deception has become so pervasive, there has come a great increase in wickedness. Gay pride signs are everywhere, from front yards to coffee shops to athletes' uniforms to even on church billboards. Pride, friends. Pride about sin. This is rebellion against God. And so we need to ask if rebellion against God is so openly flouted, what does that mean for the future of righteousness? If the culture now openly rages against the Bible's views, condemns them, and many within the church are capitulating to the culture, what further changes might we expect in 5 to 10 or 15 years? Particularly as we watch people topple, topple statues and loot stores and burn cities with what in some cases appears to be the blessing of those in authority? If anarchy is welcomed under the title protest, and police departments are defunded or canceled, even as lawlessness grows, what does that mean for our future? Jesus says that along with many false prophets and much deception, that because of an increase in wickedness or lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold. But, but, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so I'd like to close by considering this image of standing firm. But first, I'd like to speak a word of great hope. Because while Jesus here in Matthew certainly paints a picture of increasing wickedness and pressure against his followers leading up to his return, the Bible elsewhere speaks with incredible hope about worldwide harvest or revival preceding Jesus' return. As the angel tells Daniel that the words given him are closed and sealed up until the time of the end, he says about that time, quote, Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked, end quote. As Revelation 7 pictures a pause before the opening of the seventh and final seal on a scroll which is the title deed to the world, John is shown a vision of, quote, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, all worshiping before the throne of God. When he asks who they are, an angel answers, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation or the great pressure. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What an incredibly hope-filled picture. 
an uncountable number of people from across the earth undergo, undergo tribulation or deep sustained pressure. It's the exact same word as Matthew 24, 9, and they come through it as spirit-filled worshipers before the throne of God. How do they do this? How do they stand firm? Well, we'll look at that shortly, but first let's notice that Scripture offers a picture of parallel developments nearing the end of this age. The wicked continue to be wicked, but wickedness increases and intensifies. Remember the image of labor pains and an intensification, right? So at the same time, there's there's an, there's, a, there's an intensification of wickedness, but there's also an increase or an intensification of righteousness, There is a worldwide harvest of people who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, without predicting exactly where we are in the timeline of God's end-of-the-age events, I want to suggest strongly that we are in a period of intensification on all counts. These last decades, if you look at the natural, have seen an intensification or a great speeding up of things like knowledge, scientific discovery, travel, technology. You know, 80 years ago, it took weeks to travel across the world, and relatively few people did it. Now, it can be done in hours, and many travel to and fro, like the words in Daniel 12. Last year, Scott Sorokin wrote, Up until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century, but by 1945, it was doubling every 20 years. By 1982, it was doubling every 12 to 13 months. Experts now estimate that by 2020, human knowledge will double every 12 hours. So in each of these areas, and in many more, if we would spend time probing them, we'll see a general pattern of major intensification unfolding. And I believe that we're seeing and we will see the same thing unfold spiritually. That there will be an increase and an intensification of righteousness as the church explodes in growth across the earth. You know, as I listen to the prayers and the messages of of Christian leaders from around the world, the Spirit of God is putting this on the hearts of all, that we are on the cusp of revival. But there will also be, at the same time, an increase in wickedness as the Antichrist spirit grows in its rage against God, and along with this rage, an increase and an intensification of deception, an increase of pressure on God's children. And so we end today with the question, in the face of increasing deception, pressure, and raging resistance to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how do we stand firm? How do we ensure that we don't get offended tripped up, that we aren't caught in deception, and that our love doesn't grow cold. Well, Revelation 7 tells us, by washing their robes and making them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is a way of saying, their lives were filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from a lifestyle of repentance and faith. A life of worship flows from a soft and a humble heart that walks in repentance and faith. The Bible pictures this life developing through the daily disciplines of prayer and scripture meditation with the washing 
of the water of the word, as Paul says to the Ephesians. And he tells that same church, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we end with these questions. What am I doing now that will help me and others to stand firm in the days ahead? You know, we're all familiar with that story Jesus tells early in Matthew about the wise and the foolish and the how they build their homes and then the floods come and one home stands and the other one gets washed away. But here's the thing. Nobody knew when the flood was coming. It was a matter of whether they were prepared when it came. The Lord is telling us, again, he or she who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says, let them hear. There is an intensification coming. What are we doing now to prepare to be able to stand firm in the days ahead? And secondly, am I filled with the Holy Spirit daily? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your love for us, you warn us. You warn us of what's coming, just like you warned those early believers of the the destruction that was coming on Jerusalem. You gave them signs and told them to flee when they saw that army coming around. So you warn us about this intensification and the pressure that's coming on us. And you, you, you both call us and enable us to stand firm. We thank you, Father, that, that your word says that You who began a good work in each of us will carry it on to completion. That we aren't the ones who carry it on. You initiate, you strengthen, you comfort, you pour in as we draw near to you and we yield to you and we seek you. You are the faithful one. And so we rest in your faithfulness. And we ask that you would help us to to live without fear of what's coming, but that you would also Give us the wisdom and the ears to hear what we need to do now in order to prepare for the days ahead. That you would help us to build firm foundations for ourselves and also for those that we're nurturing, those that we love. Strengthen us, O Lord. Pour your strength into us, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.